Today we're going to continue in our series of, did Jesus really say that? Or did, did he say that? And today we're going to do something a little different. Um, we are going to talk about hypocrites. Awesome, right? It's a perfect topic. We love that, don't we? Um, it is one of the probably single most um, criticisms that Christians get is our hypocrisy. That we are hypocrites. That people look at us differently, that we don't act the right way. And Jesus mentions hypocrisy in two different, well he mentions it in about three, in a couple different places. And, but I also want to do something a little different that we've not done. Um, and it's probably, mo- not mostly, it's largely for people that may have not been in this church for a long time or not been around church. Um, I think sometimes we do some stuff as the church that's kind of inside baseball. Which means it's stuff that's like, you know what that, that term means is where like the very the edgy statistical analysis of baseball and it's a very high math kind of game to watch. And so when you find out the tricks or you find out like how things are done, then it's, it's the term's called inside baseball. You're, I want to help us to reveal that what we do every Sunday morning is we're try to, trying to publicly and corporately model what we're supposed to do privately. But we never tell you that. How often have you been told in church that almost every single element of a Sunday morning service is supposed to be replicated and modeled in your private everyday life all week long? That when we come together, there's two things happening. One, you're bringing your, your individual private relationship with God into a corporate setting that we can all grow from it. But it's also a way to model any visitor or guest or someone who's far from God or someone's in the midst of pain can come into this place on a Sunday morning and they feel this open arm wrapping around them of Christ. And then eventually, we hope that those patterns become part of who they are. They become part of who they are as an individual. Um, because we, you, there's a dichotomy. Some people think oh, it's all about corporate worship. My greatest fears as a pastor and a shepherd of people in a church is that you just come to Sunday morning, this is your entire interaction with God, and then you leave this place and you don't think about him throughout the rest of the week. You don't live a life that reflects his grace upon your life. And then you come back Sunday morning and say, oh, I've had church. Oh, that was great. And then you have no connection with God whatsoever during the week. That's, that's horrifying for me to even comprehend that that's what happens with people that come here on Sunday morning. Because you're not going to find anywhere in this book that says that God has about an hour and ten or hour and a half, depending on how long I preach, of your life. That he's supposed to have your whole life. And then the, my other issue is that we have people that will come in who are far from God that are visitors or guests, or they're just kind of trying to figure this out. And then we do all these things that we don't tell them why we're doing them. And then they go, what is going on? This is weird. This is like secret handshake, secret squirrel club. What's going on? I don't understand. We don't tell people what we do. Um, And so I want to try to alleviate that and show you kind of the dichotomy here. That this isn't an issue that just exists now. It existed even back when Jesus was alive. That there were religious people that did things that turned people off, And Jesus came in to show that we can't be that way. We have to be a group of people that come together corporately to worship our Savior, to be equipped, and then go out. And then along the way, we bring as many people as we can with us. Okay, so we're going to be like all over the Bible. Not really, but I will be all over the Bible, and I'll read it for you. And we're going to pretty much lay out exactly what we do on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to show you why. And I think you'll be surprised at some things, because I was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Um, We thank you for your word. It is the anchor in which everything should be hung on. That everything is anchored by the very words that come from you. Because everything else is coming from us. So help us to fall in love with the inspired word you've given us. And let it be um, the light that shines a path on our feet. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So I don't know um, if you realize just how there are some very subtle differences between the first and the second service. Okay, some are dramatic, but some are subtle. And some of them are just, are, we don't even pay attention to. Like, do you know that the candles are lit when you come in for this service, and in second service they're lit by children? If you've been to second service, you've seen that. Why is that there? I don't know. What I do know happens is that when the kids come up and they light that candle, those candles, that first worship song, um, the first half is pretty much lost. Because everyone's watching the children about to burn the church down. Now, is it a complete distraction? Maybe not totally. But what I do know is that those kids love it. It's a way for them 
to come up. It's a way for them to interact in the service. They, they, they like line up. When Brian and, um, and whoever's organizing, when he's not around, like he grabs kids, you want to do it? How do you want to do it? Like they love that part of the service. But then when I sit back, right, I usually stand up in the front over here, over here, and I'm worshiping. I can't help but, like, are they going to light the flowers on fire? What's going to happen? Does that kid know what they're doing? They don't really, I'm afraid if they're not going to pull the wick all the way down and, like, turn that off, then they're going to burn someone. Like, there's part of me that's like, I don't know about this. But what I do know is that it's great for the kids. And I think that we have to have an attitude towards worship that reflects that. That there are some things, if we're just honest, I don't know if we can be honest in church. I don't know if people can do that. There's things that are our preferences and there's things that are dictated by God that we have to do. That we're called to do. And then we have to find that fine line of between what is our preference and what is going to help bring people to the glory of God. And there's places in there where we're not going to necessarily align. But I pray that our maturity would have us in a space where we're okay with things. We're okay with things that might not be exactly how I was raised. Cause, and I'm the worst person to be. Like, I'm a history major or a history historian. I still teach social sciences. But I didn't grow up in church. So for me, everything's free game. Like, I fell in love with this book before I ever fell in love with the body of Christ and serving with all my guts. So as long as you don't mess with this book, I, we could bring in and, like, have a circle and, like, slap you know, coffee cans for drums and sing Kumbaya. And I would find a way to worship in that. But that's not my preference. It's not my preference. So we need to figure out as a church body and two services and multi-generational and little kids and everybody running around how we come together. So I think the best way is we're all on the same page, the same playing field. Why do we do the things we do? So we're called to a whole life of worship. Um, Jesus in Matthew 15, he calls out the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And what do you, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So immediately the, the, what's happening is it's public ministry. The disciples are getting um, attacked because they don't ritually wash their hands when they eat. Now, number one, just good hygiene. Wash your hands before you eat. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. There was a whole ritual ceremony, a ritual washing, a ritual way of doing things. And why don't they do that when they eat? Why aren't they being holy? Why aren't they washing themselves a specific way that leaders are supposed to wash their hands? Why aren't they doing this? And Jesus immediately goes against them and says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So what's happening is there's a tradition and we know that there are several hundred traditions that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, added to the scriptures. Like, this is what God says to do, and they were ignoring what God says to do, and they are doing something they did in a tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now what's happening was, um, there's a clear commandment to take care of your mother and your father. But these religious leaders were saying, oh, all my money, I'm, I'm going to give that to God someday. I'm saving it, and when I die, it's all going to the synagogue. So therefore, I'm, I don't have to take care of my mother and father. They can just go sit in their house, and I don't have to take care of them. I have to feed them, I have to, to clothe them, I don't have to take care of them in their old age, they can just go wither and die. And the religious leaders were doing this. And they were saying, ah, my money's mine. I've pledged it, I've pledged it to God. And so when I die, it'll go to the church. So right now it's in savings, I'm getting some interest, I'm spending it on myself. But when I die, it's all, I'm giving it all to the church. So I don't have to take care of my mother and father. So the tradition began in these religious elites that they didn't have to take care of their mother and father. So what Jesus is getting at is you've created a tradition, a man-made tradition, that's now, you're trying to let it supersede the word of God. And he tells them, you've made void the word of God. Now, is it, is it bad to make money and give it to the church and collect it and have that goal at the end? Of course not. But when you let your traditions or your goals supersede the word of God, then you've, you've lost it. And Jesus has some really harsh words. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, we'll get there, but he said for the sake of tradition, and he calls them hypocrites. Now this is a theater term, 
It's a theater term during this time of, um, when Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and it meant two-faced. So you, you ever seen the theater masks? So you have like the one smiling and the one frowning. Well, that was very classic in theater when you didn't have costuming and one person's doing the whole show. When you're trying to show happiness or sadness, you put on the mask. Like, now I'm happy, and now I'm in a moment of sadness. And you would put on these masks, these hand masks, and they would decorate them. So the theater became known, and it's still a symbol today. Um, some, if you're kids, or have you ever been in drama club or in theater, you may even have a necklace that has the two theater masks on it. It's a long-standing tradition in theater. Well, Jesus is using that. You two-faced leaders. And if you put on the one mask that lets everyone see how publicly great you are, and then your private mask is one filled with sin, filled with a rejection of God's word. So he's telling them, you can't live this way. And he quotes Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Isaiah, he's going all the way back to the Old Testament, and he's quoting Isaiah. If you read the book of Isaiah, there's a consistent pattern of your worship is false, your worship is fake, your worship isn't real. Um, God wants you to free the slaves and take care of the captives, and he wants you to honor God with your whole life, not just what comes out of your mouth, um, because you can lie with your mouth. So he quotes Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's one of my greatest fears personally, that my private life wouldn't reflect my public life. Sometimes that gets me in a lot of trouble because I've tried to not have, I've tried not to be a hypocrite. I've tried not to be two-faced. So sometimes stuff comes out of my mouth that probably shouldn't. And as I'm being sanctified, as I grow, sometimes my attitude isn't, but I've tried to be just, this is who I am. And as I grow, then you get to watch me grow. And as I fail, you get to watch me fail. And I pray you forgive me for that. And as I repent, then... Because how often is this the very thing that people outside the church have against us? Oh, you talk a good game. Oh, you go to church every Sunday? I see how you live all week long at work. Oh, really? That's how you are? Man, I thought you were going to that Bible study. You are going to that Sunday school class. You are just talking to me about that Max Lucado book, and now that vileness came out of your mouth? Oh, you, you, you talk about affection and love, and now you're seeing someone other than your spouse? Why would I even go to that church? Why would I even want to entertain that guy you call God when you say that he justifies your actions? Well, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I don't want any part of that. That's just a silly game you're playing. Well, that's the fear that Jesus has for these religious leaders. That we've lifted up our tradition to be the very word of God. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. So the church is meant to be a snapshot of where God is taking the rest of the world. So think about what happens in a church service. We praise God. We pray. We come together. We seek his face through communion. We give outside of ourselves to the church. It's all his. God owns every dime you've ever made. It's all his. And if he allows you to keep some of it, then that's a gift of grace he's given you. But it's all his. It's not yours. You didn't earn that. Where do you think you got the brain capacity and the muscular structure to earn that income? He gave it to you. So we come together corporately to say, it's not about us. We want to give. Then we open up his word because it's the only thing that he's written that we can look at and say, this is the very word of God. Everything else is just coming out of a man's mouth or a woman's mouth or it's a tradition. We're going to look at the scriptures. And then we're called to, to action afterwards. Now think about how that should look every day. Shouldn't you be praising every day? Thanking God for the sunrise, the breath that you have. Shouldn't you be seeking his face in prayer? Shouldn't you be seeking him, like talking to him? Shouldn't you be communing every day, repenting every day, understanding that you're, you are often far from him and you seek his face to come back to him, that you give of yourself, your time, your talent, your treasure, you give of yourself to others. You study his word every day. Or as much as you can, you should study it every day. We all should be in his word every day. And then at the end of the day, we're called to action after that. After we've spent time in prayer, talking to our Father, giving of ourselves, studying his word, don't we change day by day? It's what we call progressive sanctification. That we slowly become the image of Christ. 
It's funny how we do that every Sunday in every service, and yet we're called to do that exact same thing every single day. Now, what if it was happening both ways? That if we all came together and said, I'm going I'm to do that every day, and then I'm going to come to church on Sunday, and it's going to be the outpouring of what I've done all week long is going to be thrown up in praise to God on Sunday. We'd blow the roof off this place, wouldn't we? Isn't that what people would be drawn to? Look at these people who are a mess, but they keep trying. They get knocked down, but they don't stop. They come together as a group and they celebrate all their bumps and bruises, but they're still loving Jesus. That's a group of people that I would be drawn to. Not hypocrites who just go through the motions. So, why do we sing? Musical worship has been a part of the church from the beginning. There's a book in your Bible, um, it's called the Psalms. I don't know if you've read those or not, or ever seen them. Um, We sing a lot of them, you don't know it. There's lots of verses that are in hymns and contemporary worship songs that you don't even know what you're singing. You don't even know that you're singing some of the Psalms. That there are 150 Psalms. The last one, 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with the lute and the harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That everything is praising the Lord. So why do we sing? Well, it's the only instrument we're all born with. Everything else we kind of just figure out, pick up a stick, we bang things with stuff, make some strings, get some pieces of ivory and some other string, and we turn it into a piano, and we sing because we're called to sing. We're told to sing. We're, we're given songs by God. Like, Do you know how music brings people together? And we all have our preferences, and that's not what we're talking about. We all have the things that we, the kind of music we enjoy the most. But we're called to sing. So corporate worship is for us to come and sing. Corporate praise singing, whether it's hymns or it's contemporary worship stuff. Because, I mean, what a silly term is that? Contemporary worship. So 10 years from now, whatever's being played is to contemporary worship. It's silliness. The hymns that we sing in this service were contemporary worship. Like people, I don't know if you understand church history, how angry people were when those words, the very Psalms, were put to tune. And most often you had the reformers taking Psalms and turning them into songs with bar tunes. Like a lot of our hymns are 200-year-old bar songs. Like it would be like today, taking the very hymns and putting them to what's on contemporary radio, and we sing them. So it's all going to change. So I've said this before, it's going to be really funny 20 years from now when contemporary worship like, is like lasers and you're touching the air and it's being played and I'm going to be one going, no, you have to have a drum and an electric guitar and words on a screen. If there's no words on the screen, I can't sing this. Because that's, that's how I was brought into church. But the point is that we sing. We lift our voices. And even those of us who can't sing very well, and some of you very kind and have said I can sing, I think you're just being nice to me. You sing, whether you can or you can't, because God puts a song in your heart. So when we come together as a church corporately, we sing. How many of you sing privately during the week? Honestly, I don't a lot. But there's a few bands, there's a few songs I put on that just warm me. That I just, I'm brought back to a place, I'm brought back to worship. And I love it. And we are the most, we have access to everything. How often during the week do you really come into worship with the king through song? Am I the only person that's at a stoplight just singing and people look and I'm like, oh man, they saw me. It's okay. It's all right. No one laughs. Well, we do, but they're laughing at me too. The model for our prayers. The Lord's Prayer, um, we call it the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if that's a very accurate term, but... It's what we call it. It's what we have. So that's what we're calling it. Um, It's really a model for prayer. And again, Jesus talks about hypocrisy in the Lord's Prayer. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So even in our prayers, we can be hypocritical. 
We are hypocrites even in our prayer. And what he's discussing is these religious leaders. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you, your Father, forgive your trespasses. And we don't see Jesus pray this prayer again in the scriptures. We see him use it. If you've read the high priestly prayer of John, it's amazing. It's like systematic going through this model. We see him in in Gethsemane. When he prays to the Father, what's he say? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll read it to you. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, he didn't say this prayer, but he modeled it for us. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's supposed to be a model for our prayers. It's supposed to be, this is how I pray every prayer. I don't pray and then say the Lord's Prayer to put the seal that now this is a godly prayer. I pray the Lord's Prayer because it's the only one I know. I don't know what to say. I don't know where I'm at. I don't, I'm I'm distraught. So this is the one I've said every day for my whole, every Sunday for my whole life. So I'm going to, it's in my mind. I'm going to say it. But then if we have other prayers, like I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where people have prayed the Lord's prayer and then they'll come to me in the midst of a tragedy or midst of a place and say, where's God? Why didn't he heal them? Why didn't he? Well, the model Lord's prayer says, and Jesus models is that I'm going to ask it all and then his will be done. So the, the correct response to having a model of the Lord's Prayer is to say, I've prayed my guts out. I don't know why God hasn't given us the healing, why God hasn't given us this space, but I trust him no matter what, because it's his will be done. That's hard for me to say out loud because I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I don't understand, I'm mad at God, I don't know why, but I trust him. Because for my whole life I've said the Lord's Prayer and at the end it says, your will be done. I know it's not about me. But I've seen the opposite. I've seen people have prayed the Lord's Prayer their whole life, and then they come to me, and they don't, they're just lost. So we'll pray the Lord's Prayer, but we have to model it right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first step of it says, it's not about me. The first line of the Lord's Prayer says, My father in heaven. Number one, isn't that a picture of the gospel? He can't be your father in heaven if you're not his child. So the first part of the prayer has a requisite. has a prerequisite that says, are you a child of God? Because then you can say, Father, I know you're near. You're my dad. You love me more than anything else. So I'm coming to you knowing about your love. Hallowed be your name. Your name is everything. It's all about you. It's always going to be about you. It's not about me. It's about you. And your name should be known to the nations. Your name is greatest among all names. That's the posture of our prayers. He's everything. And I need him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're everything and this is all yours. That what you are doing in heaven will be loosed here on earth. It's all yours. This is all yours. Your kingdom come. I'm taking myself out of the picture. I'm taking my desires, my wants, my will out of this picture. So the right proper posture for our prayer is to first say, it's all about you, Lord. And whatever you have coming, I want that. Because I want your kingdom to be known. Then we get to us. 
So the first part of all of our prayers modeled by Christ is you don't start by saying, God, I need you. God, I want this for myself. You start off by saying you are holy and I am not save the saving work of Christ on the cross. And then we ask him, give me my daily bread. That doesn't mean just the literal bread, like artesian bread, the good stuff at Walmart that's over there in the deli. That's not what he's talking about. Every provision, everything that we have, everything that I've got, food on my table, money in the bank, a job, my health, my kids, everything that I have, give me my daily bread. Give me my daily dose of reminder of the gospel. Give me my daily understanding that you love me. Because when I'm far from you, I begin to feel unlovable. Then I start making horrific decisions because I don't feel I'm loved. Give me my daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Even in this prayer, we get the clear understanding that we're never going to be done with sin until we die or he comes again. That every single day, we have to be in a place of saying, I did it again, Lord. Not as bad as yesterday, but today I did it again. Help me. Forgive our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Forgive my sin. Because that's what it's really saying. Is There's a debt of sin. You have a debt of sin that hangs around you unless you've been saved by the blood of Christ. And forgive those who have sinned against me. Because of my forgiveness, I will forgive others. That's why you can't carry around anger and resentment all day long and then proclaim yourself to be a Christian. Because people see the hypocrisy in that. Oh, so you've been forgiven. The cross was for you. But the anger you have towards me, that's justifiable and acceptable. And even though I've asked for forgiveness and you just refuse to forgive me. How does that work? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us. Forgive me when I have sinned. But give me the power and the strength to avoid that sin. Help me to stay away from evil. I can't do this. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep me away from this. So when you break it down, I like, I like flow charts and mind maps. You know that by now. The first part of the Lord's Prayer is about God the Father. The second part is about Christ the Son. And the last part is about the Holy Spirit who's helping us. It's a very Trinitarian prayer. And if you wanted a model of how to pray, this would be a very good model to have. To say, God the Father, you're everything. I need you. You're the creator of it all. You made me and I am yours. Christ the Son. Without his love and sacrifice on the cross, I'd have nothing. Please, God. Please, Jesus. Let me have everything you have for me today. And forgive me all my debts. You've already done it once on the cross and proven it, but I I need to feel the gospel every day. And then lastly, be my constant helper. Keep me away from the way my heart is. Keep me away from the way my heart just wanders. So we're not just praying. It's It's not just a prayer. It's a model for how every prayer should be. And how a right prayer, a right gospel-centered, Christ-honoring prayer is. God's everything. Jesus is the sacrifice for my sin. And I desperately need his help. It can't just be words that we say. How about the doxology? Do you know where the doxology comes from? I kind of knew, but I didn't know until I did some research this week. It's actually the, depending on which one you read, it's actually the last of nine or 14 verses of a hymn written um, about 400 years ago. Now, it's not, the hymn's not even in our hymn book. But the point of the doxology was, again, to draw us to the Trinity. Every church history book I could read or could find was to draw us to the Trinity. It's actually part of a longer hymn written by uh, Thomas Ken who is a Lutheran slash Anglican bishop who got in some trouble. And he wrote this very long hymn 
And it was a way for us to understand that everything we have comes from God. Awake my soul and with the sun, that's the title of the hymn, your daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay your morning sacrifice. I'll praise to you who safe have kept and have refreshed me while I slept. Grant, Lord, when I from death shall wake, I may of endless light partake. Lord, I'm, I'm my, Lord, I my vows to you renew. Disperse my sins as morning dew. Guard my first springs of thought and will, and with yourself my spirit fill. Direct control suggest this day all I design or do or say, that all my powers with all their might in your soul glory may unite. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, O heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Lord's Prayer is part of Presbyterian Catechism. Like children are taught as they are growing to understand. It's, very, it's a very large part of the Presbyterian faith. It's a large part of the Catholic faith, but it's, it's, it's become much... It's, it, when you look at the Catechism, like the, Tim Keller and his, new, his Presbyterian Church in New York City, um, when you look at the New City Catechism they put out for kids to help teach your kids the basics of our faith, um, it's very Presbyterian in nature. The doxology is very Lutheran in its, its origins. He later became an Anglican, but it's very Lutheran in its origins. So we sing it after our offering. Why? Well, let's first understand that it's not about you. It's all about him. I mean, you get that? And this has been sung in Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Disciples of Christ churches, all around, but it's taken from a hymn written by a guy who was essentially exiled because of his stance on Christ. Do you get that the church is made up of a bunch of mutts? I think that's a beautiful picture. Because if we're all from different backgrounds and different spaces and different understandings, we come together the umbrella of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is sacrificed on the cross, what brings us together and brings us in our differences, that's a beautiful thing. Because it's not just our church tradition, it's our sin. It's our past. It's the junk that we all carry around, and it doesn't matter because Jesus surpasses it all. So the doxology, it's a great way of anchoring us again to the Trinity. So you've got the Lord's Prayer and the doxology that are often more about our right understanding of who God is and less about just going through the motions. So when we sing that doxology, the reason it's after most offerings in most churches when it's sung is because... You're thanking God for everything, and he is everything. Make sense? Do you know the term doxology? Even calling it the doxology is kind of silly. Because there's, I, I have a list of 28 New Testament doxologies, endings of services, endings of prayers, endings of pieces of scripture. Like, this isn't in the Bible. And a doxology, there are doxologies in the Bible, but it's when Paul or another author is closing a piece of scripture, and it's like the last song. So when you say the doxology, we all know what you mean, but it's not the only doxology. But for us, it's again, it's a refocusing of our mind that everything we have is his. How about communion? Why do we take communion? What is communion? Every Sunday we take it as a reminder of the cross. But there's a much longer story that stretches across the scriptures that should draw us to this very thing. God, when he sent the people of God to the desert, he promised manna from heaven, didn't he? He promised to provide for his children. In Exodus 16, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So the provision of the bread was a daily reminder for the people of God that God provides everything. And he tested them. Do you really daily rely on me? Do you really trust me? We see Jesus in Mark chapter 6 when he feeds 5,000. He takes two loaves, five loaves. He takes two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples set before them. He divided the two fish, provided for all there who were hungry. In Mark chapter 8, we see him directing the crowd of 4,000 Gentiles. The first one is 5,000 Jews. 
And the second time he does this is 4,000 Gentiles. And he's trying to say that the provision of God is for everyone. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile. So we get Romans chapter 3, 323, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You have to read that passage in context. Because what Paul is saying is there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus is doing the very same thing when he institutes communion. We have manna from heaven. He feeds 5,000. He lifts the bread. He praises God for the bread. The bread comes from heaven. There's no mistake of what Christ is doing here. He feeds the 4,000. He lives a blessing, breaks the bread, gives it to everyone. Then what's he do on the day of the Last Supper? Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given, thanks he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So even in the act of communion, he's bringing us all the way back to Moses and saying, God provides everything. He's the provider. He's the provision. He's going to bless you because he's God, not because you earned any piece of this. So Jesus models this over and over again. He's having a meal, he's breaking bread, and he's giving it. So when we take communion, we're remembering this last act on Passover. But what's it say here? Now as they were eating... If the only time you break bread with your brothers and sisters, the only time you break bread or you pass bread or pass cup is on Sunday morning and you have no interaction with anyone outside of this group of people on Sunday morning, you're, you're missing it. The table is a place of worship in every Jewish home. So when you invite someone to your house, you take them to lunch, you go eat with them, you meet with them, you drink coffee with them, every instance when you give praise to God for the blessings, and you share your life with people, you're having communion. So when I take communion here at the church, and I have this moment of reflection to repent of my sin, ask God to remind me of his love for me, then if I just let that sit here, it's great for me, but it's not good for anyone else. But if I take that, then I take that out of this place and I go serve in a way at my kid's school if I stop along the side of the road and help someone someone comes by the church I go someplace if I invite someone to lunch and we break bread and we talk about life and we say a blessing on the meal right there at the middle of Chili's and then we talk about sin and shame and what's happening and what we should do then I'm having communion Every night when I pray with my kids, we sit down at the table. One of us, we take turns. We pray God. To th- we thank him for our food. Then at night, when, we go, when they go to bed, we take turns. One of us prays. Sometimes we're in a hurry. Like, come on, it's late. You've got to get to bed. And so I just jump in or Amber just jumps in. And other times we're patient and say, just pray as long as you want, Savannah. She prays for you. She prays for her parents. She prays for our friends in Ohio. She prays for our friends in Indiana, our family in Indiana. Eli prays. Like we had small group at our house about three weeks ago. And so I'm always trying to like encourage Eli. Eli, you want to pray for us? I mean, I get to pray all the time. Not like I'm against prayer, but I get asked to pray all the time. And so sometimes like I just don't, I shouldn't be always be the prayer guy. Just because it, you know, I get paid to, which that's not why I pray, but you get the point. Like the pastor walks in, pastor, would you pray? Sure, I guess I will. And But Eli, you pray for us? And he just starts praying for the food, prays for our group. There's, six, there's four adults in the room. There's a college student. There's all these other kids. And he just prays this prayer. Well, where did he learn that? How does he have the confidence at nine to pray in front of adults and other kids? Where does that come from in him? Did he just turn that on with a switch? Of course not. It's been modeled to him over and over that we're going to pray at our meals we're going to pray at night so communion yes is a very special and important part of our services because it's one of the few times of the week where things are quiet and you can talk to god and there's something about a place and a space and tradition that draws us to that moment but if we just take communion here and we don't take it outside of this place we've missed the point we've missed the point 
We're to daily commune with our Father. We're to daily commune with others. That brings us into a right understanding of fellowship. About the Bible. Um, the one charge out of Second Timothy that Paul has on Timothy is preach the word. He doesn't tell him how to organize a church. Well, he does a little. He doesn't tell him how to... But not in this part. That's, I'm getting way off topic. He doesn't tell him, like, where do you put the songs? Where do you put the announcements? Where do you, what do you do? The single call on this man's life is to preach the word. Preach the word. So every Sunday we get together and we will open up the scriptures. It's the one thing that I know that if we got rid of everything else that's a preference, if, if, this, if the church burnt to the ground, and we had to meet in our pole barn, bring lots of space heaters because it's cold. If we had to meet in our pole barn or something else was done, or we had to meet at, the, um, at a hotel, or we had to meet at a conference center, and we had no instruments, the hymnals are all burnt, there's no copies. Some of you have them at home, so you bring them, but we'd have, no, we'd have nothing. All we would need would be this. This is all we need. You destroy everything that's our preference. You destroy everything that we have, that we love, that we call dear, that's what we love about church. If we have the word of God, that's all we need. This is the only book that he wrote. He didn't write what's on the radio. He didn't write the traditions. What he wrote was his word. This is all we need. There's a great book by Jonathan Lehman called Reverberation. The whole book is all about God's word reverberating from his people. That every movement of God has had different changes over the course of church history, but it's always had at its core the Word of God. That if we stray from the Word of God, we're doomed. We're doomed. That's why it's, it's, and you've learned this about me, especially in meetings or there's been conversations. I'm most often going to say, well, what's the Bible say? Well, God's Word says this. Well, I get that, but what does this say? Like, this is everything. And Jesus was very specific about what he said about, his, about the word. Now, he didn't have the New Testament as being written during his very breath. It's being written after he's gone. But he had very high view of scripture. So that's why it drives me crazy when people will say, well, you know, Jesus was all love and we don't need the Bible. And, you know, he said these things and can't we just love? And you're, you're, it's, a, it's an illogical assumption because Jesus Christ himself had a very high view of scripture. And if he's God in flesh, he's never going to go against the very words of God. There's always going to be a cohesion between the very words of God and the Bible and the words of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit leads us. There's never going to be this confusion. Now what we have in us is we have our preferences, our desires, the stuff that we struggle with. And sometimes it's very hard for us to submit to God's word because it hurts. Or it's hard. But it doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it any less profitable for our growth. So if Jesus has this high view of Scripture, shouldn't we? Like, isn't this all we need? Like, what, what happens when the parable of Lazarus and the rich man... I, I think I mentioned this last week. But I'm, what happens in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Like he wants, to, he wants, the rich man is in the parable, he's in hell, and he sees Lazarus in heaven, and he says, hey, please go send a ghost, do something, tell my people, tell my family, tell them it was all real, tell them they need to repent. And what's the response? Well, they have the very word of God. This is all they need. Signs and wonders, those, God may manifest in those areas, but he's given you the word. This is all you need. So we're going to proclaim it every single week. But my fear is, my fear is that you don't open this book during the week. Now, I'm not being legalistic. That you're not a Christian if you don't read the Bible every day. But I am saying that if you're a Christian, you should want to read the Bible every day. Because your love of Christ is going to draw you to the very words he has. I love my wife. I love to talk to her every day. I care what she thinks. I care what's going on. I care how she views what's happening in our life. So if I love Christ, shouldn't I want to hear from him? 
I think so. And then we're called to respond. So everything we do on Sunday morning, we come together to praise God. Through song, prayer, reflection, giving, proclamation, and response. Now, what if we did that every day? What if our daily lives were marked with song and prayer and times of reflection, of giving of ourselves, of proclaiming the word of God to those who are near us and responding to how God speaks to us? We are the most distracted group of people that's ever lived on this planet. We, we have a hundred channels and there's nothing on, right? Like, am I the only one that it's like 9 o'clock at night, 9.30, everyone's gone to bed, I'm going to read something, then I turn on the TV, and Law and & Order is always on. Isn't it? It is always on. ESPN Sports Center will play the exact same thing every 15 minutes all day long, and some people sit and watch it for three hours. Oh, man, did you see that? I saw it six times this morning. Why didn't you just turn it off? In our pockets, we have connections to the whole world. How many people do you know if they turned their cell phone off for six hours, they'd have a heart attack? Just turn it off. Just completely disconnect from the internet. Like, how many of you could do a digital fast and not get on Facebook or not use the internet for a week? Or would you start to have convulsions? What if we redeem the time that we spend watching all that other stuff and we actually read God's word? That we spent time feasting on the very words of our creator. How different would our lives be? Some of the first conversations I have with people when they're struggling, they're struggling in their marriages, they're struggling in their personal lives, I'll, I'll get to the point, and I do it, and I try to do it in a non-condescending way. When's the last time you read the Bible? And it's been a long time. When's the last time you spent just 15 minutes in prayer, just seeking the voice of God? I, I, I haven't. I'm not saying that the issues and the things you struggle with would just go away if you started a Bible plan today. But I am saying that I've not met a person who's been a person of prayer and a person of study that hasn't seen the power through the Holy Spirit to at least fight the fight. So if we do this every Sunday, it's a model for the rest of our lives. It's a model for the rest of the week. It is not perfection. It's not, because think about how your preferences have changed as you've gotten older. How your preferences or what you like have changed. Some of them have reverted back. Because everything else is changing so fast around you, you revert back to the way it was. Because it's like a warm blanket that you could just put on and it's, right? And none of that is wrong. I'm not, I'm not criticizing any of that. But change is inevitable and it will happen. And if you don't model these things, however they look, if you don't let them become private, personal practices that then re- reverberate out, then we just become selfish people who atrophy and we die on the vine. Paul David Tripp. Corporate worship is designed to remind you of the instability of your own heart and the eternal stability and reliability of God's grace. That we come together to be reminded that we're a mess. But God's grace never ends. That's the point of Sunday morning. It's the point of our church services. This isn't the whole space of God moving in our lives. That should happen every day, every moment, every week, for the rest of our lives, as long as he grants us breath. But we come together, like how much more powerful are we as a force for hope of the gospel when we're together in this? So as we do some things different, I pledge to tell you when it's coming because I've not done a good job of that. One thing that I think, well, I know, needs to change soon is we need to have a prayer list for us to walk out of here with on Sunday mornings. 
how many times has someone done a prayer request, I write it down, and I may ship it off to the elders, or some of you remind it, and none of you ever have it in your hand to pray for other people. Like, how often do you really pray for people in this congregation? How often do we do that? I pray you do, but I don't know. But if you have something in your hand that says, Florence Brant's having knee surgery on Tuesday, I watch some of you write that down. Because you will pray for them. You will pray for her. You will think about her. But some of us will walk out of here and won't even think about her. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with someone saying publicly that they would like prayer in a service where they had the boldness to say it out loud in front of all of you, and then we don't honor that by praying for them. Because then we've just become hypocrites. Oh, you said it out loud, and you pray for her, and then we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we walk out of here, and we don't even think about her. That's not very loving, is it? I know I just guilted all of you to get your pen out and write her name down. So she's going to be the most prayed for person in this church this week. But shouldn't we, shouldn't we put our words where our hearts really are? So all this that we come together for is for us to grow. And then it's to go. Because if we would just come fat and sassy on God's word and his presence and his grace, then we become bloated and we become useless and we can't even move and then we've not done anything. We should be lean, mean, kale-eating machines, right? I can't stand kale, but it's the new superfood. Like, we should try to come here, be equipped, and then go. And take the hope that you have. If you really believe this, don't you want others to know, to be brought into this hope, to be brought into the life of Christ? So let our Sunday mornings be a model for our whole weeks. Don't let them ever just be Sunday morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the always fruitful study of your word. And I pray, Lord, that we, as your children, would see Sunday morning as a time to come together as an army of men and women who love you with everything we've got. So that means we come into this place needing to be trained, and sometimes we need to come into this place and we need our mission orders to get out of here and to go and to serve in some crazy places and some crazy ways that would always bring honor to your name. But the first and most important thing, Lord, is that everyone in this room would know you as their Savior. So I pray, Lord, everyone here has a relationship with you, that they know you deeply, but they have a fire to know you more. Help that fire to grow. Build into us the hope we have found in the gospel so we would share it with all who are near. We love you, Jesus. Amen. During this closing song of... um